Blog Talk Radio. Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room, and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on documenting fraternal and benevolent society ancestry with Jari Anara and James Morgan III. Now, they will discuss a step-by-step guide to documenting fraternal society participation of ancestors and relatives, as well as offer tips and tricks on how to locate documents in this field of study. They will show that through understanding fraternal happenings in state and local communities, researchers will be able to get a better understanding of not only who their ancestors were, but also a better understanding of relatives' contributions to society at large. Jari Anara is a New Orleans native, and his roots date back more than two centuries along Bayou Lafouche and the German Acadian coast. He is a member of several societies, including the Louisiana Historical Society and Creole Gen, which maintains a popular blog, creolgen.org. Jari serves as National Historian for the Knights of Peter Claver and is writing a history of that organization. James Morgan III is a Prince Hall Mason serving as Worshipful Master of Corinthium Lodge Number 18 in Washington, D.C., and as the Associate Grand Historian of the Most Worshipful Prince Hall Grand Lodge of the District of Columbia. So let me give just a warm welcome to Jari C. Honora and James Morgan III to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Jari and James. 
Good, good evening. Thank you, having, thank you for having me back. Well, I'm really happy to have both of you back. And for those of you who don't know, Jarib was also a guest on this show. So I am just looking forward to this topic, and I just just love your commitment to making certain that we understand the importance of documenting and just finding out more about our ancestors' involvement in fraternal and benevolent organizations. So, James, why don't you just kind of recap for us the importance of black fraternal and benevolent societies? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, basically, the importance of black fraternal societies is this, is that these are voluntary organizations that um, sometimes can be linked to uh, religious affiliations, but many times are not. Um but they're voluntary organizations that are centered around uh, a particular charitable endeavor, centered around particular uh, initiatives, whether they be political or social or centered around social justice. Um, but they're also, and what makes them unique from just any other voluntary organization is the fact that they include initiation-based style of education and initiation-based rituals, okay, Um those are rituals that they're not going to discuss with outsiders, and they may include uh, fraternal handshakes, secret passwords. Uh, many of them have an entire uh, mythology and a kind of faux history that um, they perpetuate within the organization. And the reason why that exists in part is to give all the membership a similar uh, experience fraternally. That way you might be a member of an organization like the Elks, in South Carolina, but when you go out to California and you find an Elks Lodge, you you automatically have something to talk about and something that you can relate to with other people who otherwise might have been strangers. Um, another aspect of them that is important from a research perspective is that many of these organizations have taken very, very excellent um, meeting notes, convention proceedings. They've left a paper trail, which I know we're going to get into in a little bit, um, that that myself and Jari both found very, very helpful in our genealogical uh, research. And uh, this is a field that um, I think that most of you agree with me on. A lot of people have not explored in their genealogy quests, and those who have might have been coming about it the wrong way. So we're here tonight to try to help everybody. Well, that is uh, wonderful. And, you know, one of the, the messages that you're sharing with us tonight is that there is documentation that yes. they just didn't form and leave nothing. And so that's what we want to hear about. Where do you find these documents? And so let's just keep the conversation going because you've just given us a, a overview mentioning the initiation process and there's some consistency across the board, elk and Louisiana is going to have something similar to an elk somewhere else. So I, I understand that. But just talk more about the importance of, of the societies as far as genealogy research. As far as genealogy research, and I'll, I'll say this and I'll, I'll let, let my brother uh, speak as well, uh, the beautiful thing about them is that year after year they're, they're keeping meeting notes and they're keeping membership records. And that's really where the gold mine is going to be in part, large part for a genealogist. 
year after year. They're reporting deaths, even to include those years where, you know, in between the census. So you can kind of track how people are moving or what um, what positions they might be uh, accumulating titles or what uh, actions are going on. Sometimes you're going to find out negative things. Like somebody, I mean, a common thing I found even even this week, I was helping a, a young lady, and she found we found her great 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 grandfather in a year, and he was a mason, and but he had been suspended because he didn't pay his dues. Well, she was able to say, oh, I know why he didn't pay his dues that year. The house caught on fire. So, so you're able to see how one situation domino effect into another, but she didn't even know that he had been a member. And then later on we found out that the brothers, because they knew his situation, they actually paid his dues for him, and he was able to get back active in the organization. You know, that, that, was, a, that was a story she had never heard before. Right, and all of this was actually documented in the, the meeting notes. Correct. That one is of the that I would one of the things that I would add is, is that these societies are important when doing genealogical research because they're interwoven with multi-generational histories of families and the communities in which various lodges and societies exist. Um, as, as James alluded to, these organizations provided tangible and intangible benefits, be it sick aid or to be on relief uh, as, as it went, uh, or uh, the death benefits that they provided. And so in areas where death certificates may have only started at a relatively late date or there are no surviving hospital records, doctor's records, you can find out about incidents and occurrences in your ancestors' lives because the the bond of brotherhood that was formed in these ritualistic circles was so strong that every aspect of their lives uh, could have potentially been recorded in in the legends and minute books that we find. Right, Absolutely. and would you say that I mean one of the incentives for becoming a member was the the tangible benefits such as the death benefits or the support to the family when they hit hard times? Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. I mean, many of these organizations had. Um, you know, hardship funds or had the capability through collective action, collective uh, uh, pooling of funds to provide for brothers or sisters when uh, when they came upon hard times. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes they provided scholarships and assistance to students to go to high school or to college. One of the greats in our African-American community, uh, the late Dr. Dorothy Height, for example, went to college on an Elks scholarship. Uh, that isn't very well known. Um, so, yeah, the pecuniary aid uh, is how you'll see it listed in the charters that they rendered uh, was very, very important. And I didn't catch the first word you mentioned, aid. Did you say pecuniary? Why don't you say it again? Because I didn't quite get it. <laughs> so pecuniary aid, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that's fallen out of use lately, but you'll see it time and again in the Articles of Incorporation or Charters for these different groups, um, and it basically just means um, financial um, that they that they provide to the, to the members. Right now, we have a question that's coming out of the chat. Uh, I think you answered some of them. Why would folks want to become a member of the benevolent societies? And of course, you did mention 
the the benefits. But then there's another question when the question period opens and they're just asked, saying this to me, but I'll go ahead on and ask the question now. Uh, where would one find fraternal benevolent records? And they're going specifically to Texas, Alabama, and Georgia. Oh, oh you know what? I'm, can I take this from Sorry, is it okay? Huh? I'm sorry, no. but I didn't hear you. You're not. You're not clear. I, 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 Say, I said, I said, I said, can I, can I take this one? Of course you sure. can. Thank you. Um, I'm happy that they asked that because I actually have um, an answer. I'm not going to say the answer, but I have an answer. But I also have a volunteer opportunity that um, I mentioned to you earlier, Bernice, about um, that I want to make available to your listeners. So if you're listening in, I hope that you're paying attention. Um, there's a new book out that is called The Greatest Prince Hall Masons of the 20th Century, uh, which I actually contributed a chapter to. Um, I'm sure that, uh, Bernice, we're going to be posting that link in the, um, in the chat box at some point tonight. Um, and something interesting, an uh, interesting story that occurred, and, and there's a reason why I'm telling you all this. During the Great Depression, the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Georgia, uh, their grandmaster was a man named John Wesley Dobbs, who was a very, very popular figure and on the Atlanta scene at that at that time, very active with the NAACP, um, very ardent advocate for black uh, voting rights and, and, and whatnot. And one of the things that he did, and I, and I was familiar with him, but one thing that he did that I, that I did not know until I got the book, the manuscript, and was reading it, was that he restructured their financial benefits package to make it more uh, fiscally feasible for the Prince Hall Masons of Georgia. He, he felt as though the old system of death and burial benefits that they had wasn't going to be sustainable. So he called in all of the death certificates, or all of the, I should say, the death benefit certificates, rather, uh, of brothers. These are certificates of people who had insurance policies but had not died yet. He called them all in and reissued the new newer policies that he felt were more manageable from a financial perspective. And when I read that, I thought it was interesting. So what I did was I contacted uh, Brother Dave Gillarm, who is the grand historian, uh, who's my counterpart in Georgia, the grand historian in Georgia, and I asked him. I just said, hey, do you all still have those, those old death certificates? He said, yes, we do, but I, don't, I, I need help to file them. So I, I asked his permission, and he actually was making it available. If there's anybody who's interested in Georgia uh, genealogy research and is serious about volunteering to help him to – File some of those things and uh, correctly. Would love to have your assistance, and and I'll make myself available to put you in touch with them um, after the show uh, because he's in desperate need of some assistance with that. Um, beyond that, from from a Masonic standpoint, um, Texas has the Wilbur Curtis uh, Library and Museum, uh, which is uh, dedicated just to Prince Hall. Make sure you know that's the highlight, um, but they also highlight other black fraternal and benevolent organizations within the state of Texas. I visited with them uh, about a year and a half ago now, and their archives are amazing. They have death, they have entire collections of death certificates going back uh, to, I believe, at least to about the 1880s, maybe even the 1870s. Um, they have photographs, membership records. They have all kinds of stuff, and they're right there in Dallas, in the um, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, I def- and, and the added benefit with them is they actually have – an on-staff genealogist who's, who's full-time that actually helps people research in Texas. 
Um, and lastly, with regards to Alabama, which is um, my maternal home state, so I have a very close connection there. Um, their grand historian, Dr. Ken Collins, is a good friend of mine as well. He's actually working my official history book, but um, but we also but he also does um, do genealogical uh, lookups for people as well. Um, and I actually have um, his permission to assist. So if anyone contacts me or contacts him, we'll 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 take care of you if you're talking about the state of Alabama from a Masonic perspective. So yeah, I know, I'm sorry about that. I know it was a little long-winded, but. <laughs> Well, that's okay because you responded to his uh, question. Now, there's a comment coming out of the chat, and we're going to ask you to do a little history for us right now. Uh, First of all, was Prince Hall a black soldier under George Washington during the Revolutionary War? Um, No, (laughs) not not under George Washington. Um, It's... I'm of the opinion, the scholarly opinion, that Prince Hall most likely did um, serve in the Revolutionary War. Um, to what capacity is questionable, but in terms of him serving under President Washington, that's a, a kind of a, a – again, that's full of history. Like I, like I mentioned earlier, that I know where that comes from. I can't really get into it on the air, but that's, that's again, a part of that mythology that I talked about earlier that gets perpetuated within the organization, you know. So, yeah. Now, if that person asked the question, if, if they happen to be a man and they join, at a later date I could tell them where, they, where that came from, but I, I can't get into it in the air. <laughs> but, but the simple answer is no. Okay. Okay, because there were two other questions that went with that question, but because you said no, then we can continue to go on. So how does one get started researching these societies? Well, I would say that the, the initial step when researching these societies um, is to um, first identify whether the societies um, still exist or not. Um, oftentimes, you would be surprised to find that uh, the most obsolete-sounding or strange-sounding names of these organizations many times still have one, two, three uh, chapters, councils, lodges, or what have you still in existence. And they can be wonderful sources of information because when you have that connection to living former members or living members of these societies, they can fill you in on a lot of that organizational structure and uh, and uh, in organization uh, that is a big help when doing your research. Um, if not, if the societies are completely defunct, um, then you want to begin to turn to your archival sources. And where would these archival sources be located? Uh, They are located in a variety of places. Um, One of the places that I've had a great deal of success is in the county clerk's offices or here in Louisiana, my home state parish clerk's offices, um, or even with the Secretary of State, uh, is the charter book and the articles of incorporation for these various organizations. Um, and that's often overlooked in, in a variety of organizational research uh, projects is that churches are chartered. Fraternal and benevolent societies are chartered, as are educational associations and a variety of other groups. And to get obtain the names of those charter members and also to find out about the structure, uh, the composition of the membership of the board, uh, due structure, all of that can be very, very revealing when you're trying to piece together just 
what the family ties are and what the fraternal ties are between individuals. Now, one of the things that you're saying, you know, archival sources, you go to the county clerk or the secretary of states and you look for the charters, but how do you know what you're looking for? Do you just say, give me the names of all the fraternal organizations? I mean, just what do you specifically do? Well, one thing that I advise people to do, which is um, uh, I think often overlooked in this aspect, is check the – I mean. Check the, the green book, you know, the, the Negro green books. Check your, your your city directories going back. I mean, literally, I was able to go online and find a city directory. It was a Negro city directory for the year 1900 for Washington, D.C. I flipped over to see what – well, they have a section on fraternal benevolence societies. I flipped to that section, and literally, they're giving the names of all the organizations, subordinate lodges, chapters, councils, or what, or what have you, that are in – that city, and they're listing who are the who are the leadership, what's the address. You know, they're giving a history of how the organization started, as well as histories of how the organizations um, uh, got to Washington D.C. And th- and that's not an uncommon practice. Um, another aspect that I would say uh, is you definitely want to look at the black press. Um, a lot of or and I, and I find a, a, a lot of genealogists and family historians who are very very experienced read. Black Press will go on to uh, Chronicling America, which is a great, great site. But they don't realize that if you if you flip through enough of these black newspapers, you'll start to realize a lot of them had fraternal uh, and benevolent columns where they would tell you every week what was happening in the local lodges, what activities were happening. Um, they would, a lot of them would post election results about who was in what position for the year. I mean, this was this was a very public. Um, even though they're called secret societies, a lot of the happenings and events were made public so that the community knew when the next dance was going to be or what, what big initiative that both lodges were trying to support, whether it was voting rights, whether it was a new school or even a hospital. You know, So I, w- I would say start, start, some, start some of the normal places that you look for your ancestors as well as obituaries also. A lot of obituaries have a lot of great stuff that people, the uninitiated, look past it, and they just go straight to, okay, mom was, dad was, uh, they were survived by, and that's it. But look at, well, who did the funeral service? You know, I have a um, an obituary that I just actually for my great aunt um, passed in 1991. And at the bottom, it says that her interment was at the North Highland Cemetery, which is in Alabama, and it says that burial services provided by the ladies a missionary society, Lodge Number Two Twenty One. I had no idea what that was when I first got this uh, particular document. Well, when I started looking it up, I said, "Oh my God, this is a fraternal society for who are members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church." I had no idea they existed, but now I'm researching them. <laughs> you know, so you know, so so just be creative and don't be scared to ask for help either. You know, and, and just Google Google is your friend. That's one thing I've learned in this. Google is your friend. Absolutely. And, you know, in many cases, there there is a whole world of black uh, – well, it's a, it was a mainstream craze, but uh, particularly for us as black researchers, biographical dictionaries and biographical encyclopedias uh, starting in that Reconstruction period and going up uh, until basically World War II. You had those called Who's Who and Call It America – uh, there was one of the very early ones by uh, 
Professor William J. Simmons, uh, Men of Mark, Eminent, Progressive, and Rising. And in those volumes, they give biographical sketches on a lot of men who in their professional lives may have been postmen or shoemakers or farmers, but they held high and distinguished positions in these fraternal orders. And uh, and it, it, it chronicles a lot of their fraternal and benevolent society careers. So those are good stories. Those are, I mean, this is just really wonderful to hear this because it's something that people probably don't even think about when they're trying to research their ancestors. So the biographical uh, publications are wonderful, and I've seen many of them, and you are correct. They will describe the activities they've been involved in uh, in the community, and you will see fraternal uh, involvement, definitely. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion and just keep the resources coming. Just a quick break and right back. blog talk radio this is your host bernice alexander bennett and you can join me every thursday at 9 p.m eastern time where i will have an expert to share resources stories and answer your burning genealogy and history questions remember all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history and all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now this episode is sponsored by Write Books That Sell Now, the online course helping you write, publish, and market your story. Start your book journey with a totally free video training at writebooksthatsellnow.com backslash video training series. Now, you have been listening to Jari Honora and James Morgan III discuss documenting fraternal and benevolent society ancestry. And I am going to just turn it back over to them because they were giving us an idea of where you could actually get started with researching these societies. So how do I know, and I think you've said some of this, but how would how would I know if any of my ancestors were involved in these societies? Um, well, uh, 
one of the ways that I think often gets overlooked outside of outside of obituaries that I already mentioned is uh, you want to get an idea of what the fraternal landscape of your particular town or city look like. Um, if particularly if you're coming from an area that is predominantly black, and even so, even sometimes that aren't, but a lot of times we as a people um, are very involved in fraternal and benevolent societies even today and don't recognize it, such as your black Greek letter organizations. Those are fraternal and benevolent societies, even though they're, 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 the thing that makes them separate is that they're college and university-based. They still they're still count as fraternal and benevolent societies. Um, a lot of times family members will leave behind um, regalia. They will leave behind jewelry. You know, if you if you just sit down and talk to uh, their their widow or you know some of the older relatives and just ask and say, hey, was anybody involved in a secretive organization like the Masons or what have you? You'll be surprised a, a lot of times at how many times they'll just say, yeah, Grandpa was, you know, he was an elk and they used to go out and do things or whatever. But I don't really know about that. Well, that's fine. But where did he go? You know, what was it in town? Was it here? Okay, now let me hit the newspapers and try to find out what lodges, what organizations met. And a lot of times you'll stumble on stuff too, whether you, you know, are looking for it or not, but you just have to start. Right. I mean, go ahead, Gary. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was going to say that, you know, oftentimes these societies were formed around, you know, common uh, religious or cultural or even occupational ties or neighborhood ties. Um, For example, if you have an ancestor who was in any sort of skilled profession, such as blacksmithing or perhaps serving as a longshoreman or something like that, oftentimes when these guys are working on the docks together or engaged in one of those trades where there's an apprentice, journeyman, master-type career path, they will form societies to to, to complement those occupational ties. And so it's not it's not uncommon to find uh, the brotherhood of of smithers in a particular co- town, just like we have today, the fraternal order of police, for example. Uh, so look at occupational ties, look at neighborhood ties, and also look at religious ties. If you find that the folks from, let's say, Mount Zion on the east side of town, all tend to be the same series of intermarriages, family ties, you want to look at societies that not only your ancestor but maybe aunts, uncles, grandparents, or in-laws belong to. And I'm sure James would agree that's one of the ways that a lot of men uh, join Freemasonry and other groups is that you marry the daughter of a good Mason, he's going to bring you into the lodge, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, as well as a lot of times, which you find in places like New Orleans, um, is you'll find a lot of crossover membership as well. I mean, you'll find somebody who might be a member of the likes of Peter Claver. He's also a Mason. He's also an Elk. He's also, you know, that accumulation of titles and uh, responsibility. I don't want to say, I, I should, let me take that back. Let me not say accumulation of titles. The accumulation of responsibility within the community is very important at a time when you don't really have black elected officials as we do today. You don't have social welfare programs. So to be the master of the local lodge hall, no matter what organization it is, you know, if you're one of those five men who's been elected to lead the only thing that we're actually able to vote on, which is in our fraternal organizations, you have just as much standing in a lot of these communities, sometimes more than the local pastor. Matter of fact, you might even that becoming a leader in the fraternal organization might help you in your 
goals to becoming a pastor or becoming the uh, uh, political representative. A lot of your earlier um, uh, black elected officials got their training within the lodge halls, and then that's when the community said, okay, this one, this one, and this one, those are the ones we're going to nominate to go to Washington and advocate for us for whatever it is that we're looking for at this time. Very interesting, very interesting. And, you know, Jerry, I know you mentioned the religious uh, groups, so why don't you tell us, since you are the uh, national historian for the Knights of Peter Claver, tell us more about that. Oh, well, sure. Uh, That's one of the organizations that I belong to is the Knights of Peter Claver, which is celebrating this year 107 years of, of existence and basically was formed in 1909 in Mobile, Alabama as a fraternal organization for black Catholic men. Um, at that time, uh, many Knights of Columbus Lodges uh, operated on a black ball system and so uh, oftentimes it was hard for a black candidate to obtain admission into the Knights of Columbus or other Catholic organizations that existed. So uh, Father Conrad Rebisher, who was a Josephite priest working in black missions down in uh, in the Mobile area, he gathered together a group of men and formed the Knights of Peter Claver, uh, which exists now in, I believe, 30 or 35 states and also internationally. And uh, one thing I will tell you is that if you have ancestors who were um, Catholics in terms of their church affiliation, from Louisiana or from the coastal parts of Alabama, Mississippi, um, and all uh, areas of the South, um, you may very well find that they were members of the Knights of Peter Flavor, and they kept that affiliation when they migrated to places like Chicago, Los Angeles. We even have a very old council in in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, because uh, 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 at least 20 or 30 families from St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, migrated up that way and formed their own church and later there and ladies of Peter Claver. So uh, right now we have about 18,000 members, again, in the U.S. and internationally. Um, And our fraternal publication ever since 1922 has been the Claverites. And it is a wonderful source if you're researching, you know, Catholic more or less Catholic communities in South Louisiana because the funeral entries, the obituaries, can be wonderful sources of information. Um, I found several for individuals who were former slaves or who were in that first generation born after the Civil War. Mm But thank you for you know providing us with this background on the Knights of, of Peter Claver. Now you mentioned, or one of you mentioned, the fact that some of these individuals received their training in the fraternal organizations, and these were some of the same people that would be sent perhaps to Washington, D.C. for advocacy. So tell us just what does it look like and what can we find when you're looking for advocacy involvement and even court cases or lawsuits. Just tell us more about that. Um, yes, yeah, certainly. Um with regards to the advocacy portion, what you're going to find is that um, – well, let me back up. The first aspect we have to understand is that a lot of these organizations are forming in response to now, – now, again, there are organizations that are, like, for instance, Prince Hall Mason I'm involved with that are African-American branch 
of existing, pre-existing white organizations, and somehow somebody was, uh, a black person was initiated, and then, you know, for whatever reason, had to start their own group or their own branch or what have you, and Knights of Peter Claver is kind of in the middle with that. They're not the Knights of Columbus, but they were created, it's still kind of in response to. You also have organizations that are formed entirely within the black community, and they're forming at a time you have to look at. Now, let's look at what some of the white fraternal organizations are doing. Some of the white ones are, like like we already talked about, are rejecting the black membership or are not allowing blacks to join. But then you have other ones like, oh, I don't know, the Ku Klux Klan that are killing and are attacking our, our community. Um, and, yes, the Ku Klux Klan would count as a fraternal <laughs> organization. I was shocked to find out. Um, last year, I learned a little bit about the Ku Klux Klan's actual uh, ritual. I did not know that the Ku Klux Klan had a, had a, um, a marriage ceremony that they would do for their members. I was shocked that Klansmen in some states carry dues cards. But I learned, I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. So a lot of these organizations in our community are forming to combat that, okay? So what you're going to mm-hmm. find is you will find uh, a lot of districts officers, particularly when I district that the organization, even though we know that states in the legal sense are broken up into counties or down where Brother Jari is in parishes, within the organization, you're going to break it up into districts, and you're going to assign, you know, the district deputy grand master, the district deputy grand treasurer or somebody because the, the actual leadership of that state or nationally can't be everywhere at one time. Those more local leaders are going to go around and they're going to say in, in their reports that they would submit on an, most of the time on an annual basis, they're going to say, hey, our lodge hall was attacked and burned down recently. We rebuilt it, and when we tried to report it to the sheriff, we realized that he was not going to help us. So now we're writing the governor, and we're telling him that if we do not get justice, that 200,000 Black men work on the docks in Texas are not going to work on Monday until we get justice. These are things that are happening in the 1880s. Oh, lot, so they formed, and they 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 were they actually form uh, they they were striking and refusing to work if they didn't get the assistance that they needed. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Another go ahead, Jarvis. I was going to say uh, another thing that you find with these societies is that they would uh, pool their funds together and pay the poll taxes for their members and for members of the community at large so that there was no excuse for uh, as many men who were able to register as possible not to vote because their poll tax was already um, Many times the, the men, uh, as James said, who, who were leaders in these organizations were clergy or were as they were called then, those black and tan Republican leaders who would have been delegates to Republican uh, uh, central meetings and also to Republican national conventions. Um, And I I can tell you, in just like every state, when you find these black and tan Republican leaders, they were also either district-level, state-level, national leaders in the fraternal organization. Uh, Earlier, he mentioned John Wesley Dobbs, great Masonic leader out of Georgia. Well, it just so happens he's the grandfather of uh, the late Maynard Jackson. So those that leadership definitely continues over the course of several generations. Right. Okay. So there's a question coming out of the chat room. Since you're mentioning, you know, just the voter registration, are they paying the poll taxes? 
Are you saying there are records that will show us that this is what these fraternal organizations are doing? In many cases, yes. <laughs> in, in many cases, we will yes, find this partner. documentation. Absolutely, and, and you'll find, and a lot of times you're going to find it in the official organization proceedings, as well as a lot of these organizations did produce um, official histories that you can find online or that you can, um, you know, again, you just take your pick. I mean, literally, uh, I can go on. Um, matter of fact, maybe I will. I'll send you a link. You can go on Google Play or on Google Books and find the official history of the Grand United Order of Oddfellows, which was the African American Oddfellows. Their official history is online for free. You know, um, United United um, Brothers of Friendship. Their their official history. A lot of this stuff is public um, uh, in the public domain now. You can find a lot of these official histories for free at this point, especially for organizations that are no longer in existence. A lot of them are just out there. You know, you just have to look right. For them. So th- what you just said, we just have to look for them. We have to look for them. But what you're doing is you're telling us that we should look for them. Because that's a piece of history that perhaps many of us have not explored as as much as you two have explored. So I, I do have two questions coming out of the chat. And the first question is, what is the membership of Prince Hall? Is it going down? Are young men still joining? I mean, just tell us about the present-day status of the organization, and then, I mean, just tell us what we need to know. Um, in terms of our status today, uh, the last figure that I was told in terms of active membership was that we stood at about 400,000 members. Um, we are, the, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I always laugh when I hear that question because it's like, I, I guess because I'm a member, so it's like I'm like, well, we did just bring in ten guys in my lodge last week, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think that it's it's a situation with a lot of these organizations where they're not experiencing the same growth that they once were. That was kind of a balloon effect, but a lot of them, particularly with, with, with Masons, have kind of been on the comeback. Um, I mean, I, I, I outside of that, I don't know of any official numbers um, except to say that. You know, all of our Grand Lodges um, throughout the United States, as well as, believe it or not, there are Prince Hall Grand Lodges in the Bahamas, um, Canada, um, Liberia. Um, They're all healthy as far as I know, um, you know, in terms of their membership and everything. I mean, we – I mean, uh, the state of New York just started a new lodge. So, I mean, we're we're very – I won't say that we're as big as we once were, but we definitely still have a lot of – Active members, a lot of active lodges. Um, 50, and as a matter of fact, um, roughly 50% of all Prince Hall Masons reside in the Old South, you know, in, in the Old Confederacy. So, you know, which, is, which would make sense because a lot of us come from there. So, I mean, you know, I, I think Alabama has – they have a couple hundred lodges in Alabama alone. Um, same thing with Georgia. Texas is, Texas is huge. Oklahoma has lodges all throughout the military uh, system. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're good. Um, on that, I think. Right, right. So, you know, you just you told us that, you know, Google is our friend, that we can find mm-hmm. documentation on these various groups. But when you talk about today, present day, and you talk about the past, has the mission changed at all? Sorry, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> <laughs> you give me the hard question. 
one one thing I will say is that the I think people's reasons for joining or the the interest that people have when they join these fraternal and benevolent organizations has definitely changed. I can tell you that one of the the things with uh, the Nice Peter Clayville, one of my organizations, for example, is that the benefits we now offer are easily trumped, and that's what many fraternal groups buy commercial insurance policies, for example. Um, basically, we, we retain the, the benefits as a homage to the past and as a small enticement to join, um, but they're easily trumped by commercial insurance policies. But I think people are looking to join because they're seeking something up on a higher plane. They're seeking that bond of brotherhood and sisterhood that's formed through the ritualistic work. Um, and also a forum where they can discuss things, make change happen in their communities. Um, are younger members as intrigued by the the sashes, the ribbons, the badges? Perhaps not. And are they... Uh, is the lodge or the chapter or the council their only outlet? No, because now if I want to get a discussion going or if I want to uh, to to get on the box about an issue, I can take to social media from the comfort of my home. I don't have to go down to the lodge hall and start a discussion over cards or over uh, libations or anything like that. But that that is the role that they played in, in years gone by. Um, right. I think that's one of the mm-hmm. challenges groups and even black Greek letter organization space is to remain relevant um as we as we get into the digital age. Right. Which is a good a good uh issue to bring up. I mean what happens with the digital age? Do people just abandon the face to face, as you said, going to the lodge and communicating uh by way of the internet? Now, I do have a question coming out of the chat, so just let's see if we can move with this question. The chatter is asking, if I see Winter Capital Elks Lodge and Young Men Olympian Benevolent Association are invited to attend her great-grandfather's uh, – it's, it's in the her great-grandfather's 1968 obituary – does this mean that he was probably a member? He was from New Orleans, and he died there. I, I, you know, it's amazing. I instantly knew that was a New Orleans person when when you named the two organizations. I, I live not far from the would still would still standing the old hall of the Winter Capital Lodge. Um, yes. I would say if they were invited, it is very, very likely that uh, that her ancestor was a member of both of those organizations. The Winter Capital Lodge, unfortunately, it was incredibly popular in its day, but uh, I have not yet come across any surviving archives of that of that Elks uh, Lodge. But the Young Men Olympian uh, Society is still very much active, still taking members. And uh, they have a hall and a website. I don't know the web address offhand, but uh, she should be able to contact their uh, historian and get some information on uh, on her ancestors' membership and perhaps even photographs because their parades have been uh, well-documented photographically for decades now. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now, so there's and, another and, question and, now. Go ahead, on. 
Oh no, I was just gonna say, and, and also um, uh, that's a that's a perfect example of the kind of information that you'll find in an obituary. A lot of times when you find that, just like with my my aunt's obituary that I mentioned earlier, a lot of times that that would mean at the at the service that that organization did their um, their burial service uh, that they will provide for the for the deceased uh, member, which was an actual ritual. A lot of them will have private ceremonies as well as public ceremonies, which kind of serve the dual purpose of sending off that member with proper honors uh, due to their rank and title, but also would serve kind of as a commercial to say, hey, we we our dedication to our brother and or our sister is so. Uh, Interconnected that it extends even beyond the grave. We're 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 sending them off. We're going to be the last ones to send them off to meet to meet their their creator. You know, it also served as a commercial as well as um, providing a, a unique service that uh that I think is an art that's kind of lost these days. So yeah. Okay, so we have another question, and this is about the American Woodmen. Now they allow women. But what about other groups? Did they allow women or did they have to set up their own? The women have to set up their own uh, fraternal organization. Um, it varies. Um, Go ahead, James. No, 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 no you, you, you got it. You're good with the hard question. Oh, I, I was, I was going to say that it varies. You will find that many organizations like the Elks, for example, um, it's almost they almost always when they form an Elks Lodge, they will also form a Daughters of the Elks um, Lodge as well. Or, for example, with us, with the Knights of Peter Claver, we have the Ladies Auxiliary. Um, the degree to which women are able to serve in official capacities or have their own offices structure, um, that varies. I can tell you that in the Knights of Pythias, for example, um, their derivative order is the Order of Talum. And it had its own female officers, but there was always a uh, worthy patron who would have been a male uh, officer to oversee or to conduct the actual legal business of the order. And a lot of that is just reflective of the times when uh, men would have been more highly regarded when doing legal business or transacting property or things like that. So you will find um, in even smaller societies, that you'll have an enti- organization made up entirely of women, but the financial secretary uh, job is always given to a man. You know, um, so it just it just varies. It just varies, right. and Angela has mentioned two organizations: the United Brothers of Friendship and the Sis- and Sisters of the Mysterious Ten. That that's one single group, and the Knights and Daughter of Tabor were both men and women. Absolutely. Uh, so, Absolutely. you know, I, not I a, that, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, oh, oh I, uh, I would add also, um, we can't have a discussion about the female role in the history of fraternal and benevolent organizations without discussing Maggie L. Walker, who was at one time the head of the Order of St. Luke, which actually she was the head of it at its peak um, and saw and oversaw the most growth that that organization experienced um opening um a bank really opening two banks one bank that ended up merging into another one that she still was the head of uh they had the St. Luke Emporium down in Richmond I mean their 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 membership 
multiplied significantly under her leadership. Um, and this is at a time, this, we're talking about the end of the 1800s um, when she did this. Uh, and actually the funny thing about it is that she took over the organization from a man that had been running it and basically financially was running it into the ground. Uh, she saved the organization. So, you know, it, like, as we said, it varies, but I, I just wanted to make sure that we uplifted her name because I don't think she's, she's uh, known or appreciated enough. And the Order of St. Luke was very popular in its day, very popular. Mm-hmm. Sure. I would also yes. just Go ahead. I would also like to lift up the name of Mrs. Uh, Emma Kelly, who basically spearheaded the, the daughters of the Alps, the ladies' uh, derivative of the of the uh, International Benevolent Protective Order of the Alps of the World because she took the initiative to actually approach the men in uh, the Fraternal Order and ask them uh, and work with them to create the women's uh, branch of the organization. And you find that even in many areas with Knights uh, Peter Claver and with other groups that the women sometimes are more eager to uh, expand in, into new territory than the men and so they'll often have to petition the men using uh, uh, almost very reminiscent of uh, of uh, John Adams' wife, remember the ladies. Well, they'll say, you know, brothers, y'all have an obligation to make sure that the sisters are provided for uh, and would basically pull at the coattails of the men to get them to expand the order or to establish new lodges. Yes, yes. Now, oh my goodness, this is this is such an interesting topic. But what happens? I mean, the groups are defunct. Where do we look for the records? Uh, a lot of organizations, even before they went defunct, um, actually had already tried to get into the business of establishing official archives. Um, particularly if you're in a state or in an area where there's a historically black college or university. Um, I know up here at Howard, I mean, literally, I think we had somebody ask about the Woodman earlier. Um, I stumbled upon finding out that this, the Woodman of America, uh, the, the black Woodman, um, that they had established archives at Howard. I was, I was like, oh, my God, I, I, I go there all the time. I had no clue that it was there, but it's there. Um, you know, uh, you definitely want to check out, again, the newspapers, but you also want to look at your – um, your local HBCUs, uh, you want to find out from even, – even sometimes I found even sometimes the city will have some information. If you go down to, like the, to your local library sometimes, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, they did uh, drop some boxes off here before the last lodge died or something. So you definitely want to, um, want to reach out, reach out to, to, to kind of to the same resources that you would in any other genealogical quest and just kind of ask the question. That, that, that's really the best thing I could ask or, or that I could say is that, uh, if you ask the question, you'll be surprised. Some of the contacts some of our more experienced listeners might have might already have information, but you never asked for it, you know, um, including, and that doesn't just mean institutions. Sometimes that could even mean your own, within your own family members. Um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've uh, worked with that they'll say, oh, well, I talked to my aunt, and she went in the basement and pulled out my granddad's old, uh, his old Masonic box, and it had all these books in it, <laughs> you know. So, 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 so definitely. Another good right. source would be another good source would be WorldCat.org, which uh, is intended to be sort of a compendium of the catalogs of libraries around the country and around the world. Even, and you can enter into WorldCat.org the names of some of the older, defunct, or more obsolete societies, and see if any libraries have 
history books that they publish, ritual books that they publish in their collections. Another certainly would be archread.org, which is similar to what's done for libraries, but it's intended to be a finding aid depository for different archives. And you can enter the information. And even one of the things you'll find when using archivegrid.org is there may be one little volume, one little pamphlet or something in person's collection that you have no idea who the person is, but that individual was a member much like your ancestor. And so that pamphlet can be of great value when, when doing your research. Um, a lot Certainly. of times we'll find that dues books, uh, dues cards, um, uh, ball invitations, banquet invitations, those sorts of things do survive, but they're in the vertical files or vertical collections of public libraries uh, in the area that you're researching. So you mean we can actually find the dues books in the libraries? Yes, I have found I have found lots of dues books. In fact, earlier this week I was at Xavier University of Louisiana's archives here in New Orleans, and they have a Black Benevolent Association collection. And I was, you know, just looking over some of the, the, the dues books of some of the members paying 10 cents, 25 cents, and, uh, you know, being sent notices for being delinquent or not attending the funeral of a member, things like that. So, yeah, you can find those gems uh, which, which still exist, um, especially like uh, James said, in university archives and in the, uh, the public libraries. Right now, certainly. As, as, uh, I just want to say too, there's a great website called Stitching Argus, um, which I know it sounds like a funny name, but they actually there there actually is a site that's dedicated to fraternal rituals. So you know, uh, myself and Jarvi, we can't necessarily tell you the things that we do, but if you want to go look at to kind of get a better idea of what these organizations were about, um, you can find like Stitching Argus, and and there's a lot of great even homebrew sites dedicated to fraternal um, organizations that are defunct or no longer existence, like the, like the Grand Army of the Republic. There's a whole, I found out recently, there's a whole community of people dedicated to researching the Grand Army of the Republic and they're on Facebook at that, you know. Um, and But when I, I contacted them and I went on their website, they said, well, check our website out, let us know what you think. I went on the website and found proceedings for the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a um, a, a fraternal organization for Union Civil War uh, Civil War veterans, I found their proceedings going from like the 1880s to the 1930s. They were just downloaded for free. You know, do you think I downloaded it? Of course I did. <laughs> of course you did. Of course. Now back to Xavier University. How many groups are represented uh, and at Xavier University, Sherry? Well, in the particular collection at Xavier. Uh, Xavier had one of the earliest departments of Negro history in uh, in the South, or perhaps in the country for that matter. And back in the 1930s, they compiled, oh, I would say information on about 40, I would say about a good 40 societies. And it varies. For some, it's just one pamphlet or two pamphlets. And then for others, they may have an entire volume, ledger book of minutes for a period of time. They do have a great deal of information on the juvenile cooperatives benevolent association. They have several years of minute books, which are very, very fascinating to go through. Um, also, the University of New Orleans has uh, the largest collection of records on the Société des Jeunes Amis, 
the Young Friends Society, which was very mm-hmm. popular uh, in New Orleans, uh, and its hall was one of the birthplaces of jazz music. They had their ledger books. The, 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 I don't know if you'd say the problem, but the difficulty is they recorded entirely in the French language. I have found societies here in New Orleans and in Louisiana where the, the minute books are kept in French uh, well into the 1940s. So it shows you how long mm-hmm. the French language was here. Um, mm-hmm. Another place to go for information is actually eBay.com. <laughs> it seems strange, but you would be surprised that you enter, oh, I don't know, the Knights of Tabor, for example. You will find that oftentimes over the years, families would dump out grandma's papers or grandpa's papers, not knowing that they had paraphernalia or literature that was published by these organizations, and this will make its way to eBay.com. And in the description of the items, you can get some good clues and maybe even bid on the items. Right, right. Oh, this is just wonderful. Now, there's a question uh, coming out of the chat room. And is there a difference, or can you say there's a difference in organizations of, and I'm going to say it for how it's written, what is done differently from the English Virgin Society versus African American Society, English as in Great Britain, when you're looking at the various fraternal organizations? Um, I'm assuming they're talking about masonry since we started in England. I'm, that's what I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. I would say, and, and really, I guess I'll say this for all the, 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 the all the organizations that started off with a white or a, a of a European origin. Um, when they come to the African American community, the rituals are the same. I mean, I, I, I'm I've been to many. Historically White Lodges, I'm an honorary member of one of them. <laughs> um, the rituals are basically going to be the same. The overall practices, a lot of kind of stuff is going to be the same. The difference that you'll find within the vast majority of black fraternal organizations is that sense of social engagement. Um, is it, 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 There's a different level of urgency in the history more so. Don't, don't, I, I wouldn't really get delve into the ritual for differences, but the history. So, for example... When you look at um, Grandmaster Henry C. Benford, who was Grandmaster of uh, Prince Hall Masons in Alabama in at the turn of the 20th century, um, he actually had put a proposal out that, um, I, as a matter of fact, Jari, I think you're going to like this. He had put a proposal out where he said that he didn't believe that his membership should be involved in labor unions, and here's the reason why. His argument was that he said the Negro in, in Alabama should not be involved in labor unions because when you're involved with the labor unions, you say that the German and the Irishman and the Dutchman and the Frenchman and all these other men are your brothers in the trade. And whenever they need you, you always go running to them and support whatever initiative there is. And what happens is that those other people, they go in to the back room, and when they come out, they just got a raise for $2.00. Meanwhile, your wages have been cut by 50 cents, and the, and your brother has lost his job. And mm-hmm. so what his argument was, was why don't the Masons and the Knights of Pythias and the Othos, all these black fraternal organizations, let us be like your labor union. Let us, because we are within the same community, let us 
bond together as a fraternal organization and go to the governor and say, look, we have almost every Negro man of working age in the state who is down with our agenda. Here are, here are our demands, okay? You're not going to find that same kind of uh, discussion, that same kind of speech in the white counterpart organization, even in the same state, because why? White Masons in Alabama didn't, have, didn't need to say anything like that at that time. They were taken care of, mm-hmm. comparatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to find situations like, for instance, with um, uh, the uh, in, in in Prince Hall Shriners. We have a, 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 our own holiday called Jubilee Day, which is coming up, which is on June the third. Um, we actually created a holiday out of the fact that we have a Supreme Court case where the if anyone sees like the Shriners International commercials, the Shrine Hospitals, all that kind yes. of stuff, mm-hmm. they they sued us and tried to say that we were not legitimate Masons or legitimate Shriners, even though we were. <laughs> um, but we actually had lost a case in Georgia, a very important case in Texas. We also lost, but we took that case to the Supreme Court, and on June 3rd, 1929, we beat them at the Supreme Court level. And not only did that case establish the legality of African-American – from a, from a political perspective, it established the legal – existence of Prince Hall Masonry as well as the Prince Hall Shriners, but it also established a legal precedent for other black fraternal groups because had we lost that case, you might not have black Greek letter organizations today, to, just mm-hmm. to say the least, of, of, mm-hmm. of, with regards to other organizations. So, um, again, it's the sense of social urgency, I would say, is the biggest difference, not so much ritualistic, but really the, the social urgency. Uh, again, voting rights, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Right, right. Now, for for individuals that want to continue to pursue just the research uh, aspect of finding out, you know, was their ancestor really in a fraternal uh, benevolent society, how can they contact the two of you for more information? Well, I'm 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 on Facebook all the time. Uh, James Morgan III. Uh, you can also email me uh, at jrmorgan nine one nine aol dot com. Um, you know, I I particularly have a um, expertise with regards to um, not only just Prince Hall Masonry, but really the really I would say more so the east of the Mississippi is more my stomping ground, and like the old South is really where I know. The history. I mean, I can help people going further west or anything, but I I kind of be teaching myself as I go along, um, and uh, you know I'm 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 available. <laughs> I'm available to help. And also, right. we have a, um, a Facebook group called um, uh, African American Fraternal and Benevolent Society History. So I know it's a long title, but if you just look up African American Fraternal, uh, you can just go on on Facebook, and, and we're we're both there. We're we're, fa- we're family members of that that group as well. It's called African American Fraternal Group. And but it's African American Fraternal and Benevolent Society History. And I know it's a long title. <laughs> and is this group a closed group or it's open to anyone? Uh, it's closed just because we we want to make sure that we don't get any like ghost profiles. But if you if you're just a regular person, just go ahead and join, and we'll accept you and ask your questions, and we'll be happy to try to help with your research. Right. Sure. Right. And I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, my email address is very simple. My first name, J A R I, and then my last name, Honore, H O N O R A, at yahoo.com. 
Um, I do frequent Xavier's archives fairly often, as well as the Amistad Center, um, and so I can check for information in the Claverite from basically the late 1920s on, and also I have a pretty good grasp on the organizations here in Louisiana and in the uh, Gulf Coast region. For those people that are from from New England or further up the East Coast, where can they do some of their research on the fraternal and benevolent societies? Since you all mentioned mostly what was going on in the South. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 I know Harvard has a great archive. Go ahead, Jerry. Well, no, I was going. I was going to the exact same source. I was going to say Harvard. Uh, the uh, Beinecke Library uh, at, at Yale, those are wonderful repositories because in many cases, the societies in New England um, were formed by free people of color in the antebellum era, and so they have very long histories. So what you find is that many of those groups have century-long histories um, by the point where we're getting to the 1920s and 1930s. They're already celebrating their centennial anniversaries and put out booklets and things like that. Absolutely. Great, great. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. Do you two have any closing remarks before we end tonight's discussion? Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start. Um, I want to thank, again, thank you so much for have, having both of us back on here. It's really an honor and pleasure. Um, again, I would just ask people to support the book, um, The Greatest Prince Hall Masons of the 20th Century. Uh, you know, I contributed a chapter, but it was a, a, a labor of love between myself and several um, co-authors, so we're very excited about it. Um, I would also say that um, at the end of the day, all these organizations played a great role in, in creating the tapestry that um, – has led to our community today. Um, it's a shame that we have forgotten them, but it's my hope that the work of myself and my brother are doing uh, will inspire others to go back and kind of dig some of these organizations up. Because because I, I I'd be I'd be lying to you if I said that we knew everything. You know there are organizations out there still that we have not uh, uncovered and whose names haven't been spoken in decades. We need to uncover that history and uncover that information because I promise you if we do that, we'll find some of our ancestors as well um, who deserve to be uplifted. So uh, with that, again, I just thank you for having us. Well, thank you so much. And uh, before we, we end the discussion, there is a last question coming out of the chat room. Would members leave information in the home uh, repository so that, you know, we would know where to go and find them. Would members be told to leave information? Um, that, that depends on the organization <laughs> uh, more so than anything. Um, a lot of organizations got into the habit of saying, well, our ritual books or what have you need to be returned at the death of a member, which sometimes families did, sometimes they didn't do. Um, you know, there is a tradition uh, within some organizations that, hey, if, 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 I'm a, if I'm a woman and I'm a member of the Sisters of the Garden, I'm just making it up, but if I'm a member of the Sisters of the Garden and I'm a woman and I die, well, all of my belongings should go to my eldest daughter or my eldest niece, you know. So, that, so they have some kind of – sometimes they have traditions like that, but a lot of times, whether they had it or not, a lot of times families would just throw things out. Um, or leave it in the basement or attic for 30 or 40 years until somebody mm-hmm. like myself or Jari comes and looks for it. 
Right. Well, well, let's let's kind of put the put the word out right now that for those of you that even think that your family members were involved in a fraternal or benevolent uh, societies, please look at home. Look to see what information is there. Don't let it be thrown away. And uh, certainly don't, I mean, you don't want to find it in the trash. So put it somewhere, even if you have to donate it to your local university. But write it down, write the story, because, I mean, that's what it's all about. You're trying to, you know, understand just what your ancestors were involved in. And so it's very important that this information continues. And I want to thank both of you for your commitment to getting this information out to all of us because we've, we've just touched the surface of understanding how valuable those resources are to all of us. So thank you so much, Jariana Ray and James Morgan III, for joining us tonight. And please remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Now, remember, you can get useful tips, resources, and insight into all things book publishing on the Write Books That Sell Now weekly podcast. Subscribe to the feed at writebooksthatsellnow.com and get ready to learn how to write Publish and market your book to tell the stories of your ancestors and leave a lasting legacy for your family. That's writebooksthatsellnow.com. So thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Jerry and James. Good night. Good night. Good night.